It's time now for Super Psychologist, Dr. Mara Carpell and your golden years. Good evening, and welcome to Dr. Mara Carpell and your golden years. This evening and every Sunday evening at 5 p.m. Central Time and at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, right here on blogtalkradio.com and on drmarakarpel.com. And today is Sunday, February the 11th, 2024, and I'm psychologist Dr. Mara Carpell, and we are back live with another great program for you. And Art Mendoza of Accomplice Entertainment, producer of this program, is here, of course, to make the show run smoothly as usual. And in a little while after the break, we'll be joined by Michelle Young-Dewers to discuss her book, Killing for Profit, The Dark Side of Hospice. And she'll be discussing some of the issues related to hospice having become a big business how this has affected the way that it is run and tends to push families um, to get their loved ones into hospice when it might not be appropriate, and how to prepare yourself for such a huge decision without being marketed to and manipulated. And then after the show, you can hear this evening's program again by going to my website, and the link to the podcast will be posted later tonight, along with any website links given on the program. And you can also hear the podcast in as soon as five minutes after the show ends by going directly to blogtalkradio.com slash yourgoldenyears. And you'll also be able to hear it on Apple Podcasts as soon as the show ends. And for information from previous programs, to listen to previous programs going all the way back 10 years since we started on Blog Talk Radio, Go to my website, drmarakarpel.com. Of course, you can find them all at blogtalkradio.com slash yourgoldenyears. And all of those podcasts are at Apple Podcasts. And for upcoming programs and events, follow me on Facebook, Dr. Mara Carpel, Your Golden Years. This show is produced by Accomplice Entertainment and Psyched Up Productions. And we're going to take a brief break just to play a few of our sponsors' commercials, but don't go anywhere. We'll be back very quickly, and we will be joined by Michelle Young-Dewers. So don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Super psychologist Dr. Mara Carpell will be back after words from our sponsors. Are you or a loved one a Medicare beneficiary? Help save you and Medicare money by stopping Medicare fraud. Fraud happens when Medicare is billed services or supplies you never received. There are three easy things you can do to prevent fraud. Review your Medicare claims for accuracy. Protect your personal information. And look for any suspicious activity. For more information or to report fraud, call Medicare at 1-800-MEDICARE. Or call your local Medicare SHIP program at 1-800-252-9240. Please visit us on the web at www.drmaricarpel.com. And- 
And we're back. If you're just joining us, this is Dr. Mara Carpell and your golden years right here on Blog Talk Radio and on drmaracarpell.com. And we are joined on the phone by Michelle Young Dewars, and she'll be discussing her book, Killing for Profit, The Dark Side of Hospice. And I'm going to give a little bit of her background because I know Michelle's a little shy to talk about herself. Um, Michelle is a respiratory therapist who served for five years on the ethics committees of four major hospitals. She was a clinical instructor, and she worked on the front lines of healthcare during the SARS outbreak and the swine flu outbreak. In her work, she has played an important role in the living and or dying of patients with prolonged illnesses and decisions about hospice. Michelle has cared for and worked with many high-profile People, including a staff member of the governor of to a governor, a state senator, former vice president of the United States. She's a, received employee recognition award from the medical staff of a prestigious hospital in the Tampa Bay area for her dedication to patient excellence. She's been featured in magazines and radio shows for her work with COPD patients her expertise in pulmonary rehab, and the decline of the healthcare system. And so Michelle is here with us this evening to talk about the dark side of hospice. Welcome, Michelle. Hello. Thank you for having me. That was such a nice introduction. Thank you. <laughs> Did I leave anything out? <laughs> no, I think you captured it all. Okay, good. Thank you so much for joining us this evening. I, I think this is such an important topic and, and one that I feel very passionate about after my own experience with my mom and then finding out that our experience was not unique. And, um, yeah, it's been very, very eye-opening. And I think, luckily, we escaped from having put my mother in into hospice and uh, finding out what would have happened is very eye-opening. So I hope that we can help a lot of people who are faced with that. Um, Me too. So what? why don't we start with what led you to write this book? I was angry. I was angry at how patients and families were being treated by hospice. I was angry at how the healthcare system failed to protect people in such a vulnerable position. And the level of deception being put forth to trap families and patients in this system. Um, I was also angry at myself for being part of it and not seeing the truth of what was happening earlier than I did. And mm-hmm. lastly, I wrote the book as a warning to others, as if you're going to, if you're going to use hospice, just know what you're getting yourself into. Right. Okay. And it is a warning. <laughs> um, but, you know, I'd like to start off with the positive, just to, you know, bring in those people who really love the concept of hospice, and some people have had very good experiences. So let's just start off with what are the situations when hospice might be appropriate? Well, 
Well, when you have a life, you know, a terminal illness, end of life care, there is a place for hospice. Mm-hmm. Um, hospice, the service concept of hospice is, I think, despite my personal, you know, being in with hospice, what I saw, experience, there is, uh, it fills a need in our society. You know, throughout history, there have been people that have cared for the sick and dying. And it wasn't until like 1967, I believe it was, that uh, Dr. Cicely Saunders in England opened the first modern-day hospice house. And then it came to the United States in 1974. Um, and the concept, like I said, for the terminally ill or those that are nearing the end of life or expected to pass in six months or less, hospice focuses on the care and comfort of the patient. And they're no longer, hospice is no longer looking at the number of days you may have, but the quality of those days. You know, would you want to be in agony for 30 days or would you rather have a week's worth of really good pain-free days? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And, and that's the good part of, of hospice. Okay. And, okay. You know, we're all going to die, just how... We look at the end of at the end process. Right, right. Um, and you know, I I know that um, I discussed with you my family's experience two and a half years ago when uh, the doctor in the hospital, when my mom was in the hospital, tried to convince us that my mom was dying and needed to be in hospice. So at the same time, I knew that she was not dying because I'd been around dying people and I knew that she was not. She was um, she was bored. She told me she was bored. She wanted to go to rehab. She was hungry. She was very interested in things that were going on in my life and uh, other members of the family's lives. She wanted to know where I was going to eat that evening with friends. That's not the behavior of a dying person. But um, the doctor used a lot of manipulative language to constantly say that we were, that I was um, just seeing her in a moment when she was rallying every single day for a month. (laughs) And he brought in a team to manipulate. And uh, thankfully, I um, defied him and we got the, cardiologist to take over my mom's care and she got out of there and lived a very happy life for two more years without any um, issues related to the reason that she went into the hospital and um, even though the doctor had told me if you take her out of here she'll die in seven days so but at the time I didn't know that this was a common manipulation by healthcare providers 
And I also mm-hmm. didn't know what if, what would have happened if she went to hospice other than they wouldn't have given her the care that the cardiologist gave her that helped her get better. I did not know that they would actually hasten her death. Um, can you talk a little bit about that systematic manipulation to convince families, um, even when the person is not actually dying and doesn't want to die? Well, we find out very, the hospital, case managers, find out very early on what is the patient or family's greatest fear. And then they use that to manipulate them. And it sounds like cloak and dagger and no, it can't be that way. But until you're in that situation and you can't see it, it's it's very subtle. Um, they use like a, a divide and conquer type mythology where they'll tell the patient, you don't want to be a burden to your loved ones. And then they'll tell the family, you don't want your mom to suffer in a nursing home. Or if it's a financial issue, they'll tell you everything good about hospice and how they'll help you how rehab is not covered by your insurance or Medicare is not going to pay for the nursing home. They'll overpromise that you can keep your doctor. They'll offer a nurse to visit several times a week or an aide. They're going to tell you they'll, you know, they'll keep you on all your medication. They'll give you all your supplies and equipment at home. Because when patients are in the hospital, what do they want? They want to go home. So they're going mm-hmm. to present it that we'll take care of all of your problems and you can go home, leave it to us, and we'll take care of you. Well, who's, who's not going to sign up for that? I mean, you know, sign right. me up for that. Um, but then the reality that then once you are at home, that you have, you know, recycled equipment, your medication is cut. Uh, they only deem what medication they want to give you, which is usually morphine and Ativan. Um, Your doctor doesn't see you in the home. Your doctor, your personal doctor, is not going to see you in the home because he's not a hospital doctor. Now, they knew that, but they weren't going to share that information with you because you trusted them. Uh, the mm-hmm. nurse may visit you once a week. It's just, it's manipulation Really, it's the deception of services, promises made that aren't going to be kept. Mm-hmm. This is the bottom line. What about the situation that I that I went through, that um, where we were actually, you know, they knew they had someone, myself, who was saying, no, she's not dying, she's not going to hospice. So they um, tried to manipulate it that I was not being. Uh, uh, realistic, um, brought in my brother and I to have a meeting with a social worker and a chaplain to mm-hmm. speak in soft voices and tell us they understand how we feel and it's very difficult and that we're in this situation and nobody wants to face it. It's just real gaslighting, basically. Um, what is that? Is that pretty common? 
that is so sickening. And yes, that is you just saying that to me. I mean, I I I haven't been part of those conversations, but I've been in the area of those conversations to listen in. And it's it's um it's deception. It's and here let me let me backtrack just a minute. I think there is a part, a place for hospice. So I I don't want to throw all hospices in the bad bucket, so to speak. There are bad organizations with good actors that work within them, and then there are good organizations with bad actors. Did I say that back with the same? Um, but you, you you follow what I mean where mm-hmm. you have to judge the hospice on itself, not just paint a broad stroke that all hospices are like that. Because I don't believe all hospices are like that. Mm-hmm. I do believe right. the majority of hospices are, though. That's the, that's well, the problem. Well, in this situation, it wasn't even the hospice. It was the hospital and the doctor. Mhm. Mhm. They were well, pressuring they their hospice. Right. They have their own um, agenda as well. I mean, it just doesn't mm-hmm. start and end with hospice. It starts before then, and it starts when you roll into the uh, to the hospital. Right. Right. Um, now I want. I noticed that Marsha is calling in. Is it okay to take a question right now? Are you open for a sure. question from Marsha? Okay. Sure. All right. Okay, Marsha, are you there? Um, I didn't have a question. I just uh, was calling in in support of Michelle and what she's saying, um, and what you were talking about with hospice. It is a total manipulation. And what people need to understand is the reason for that when they're in the hospital to get them to turn it over to hospice. And I think that's what they were trying to do when they were talking to you so that you would allow them to call hospice in because, um, as Michelle can explain to you, they don't want you to, your parent to die or your loved one to die in the hospital because that goes against them. But if hospice is trolling the hospital then they do want that. They get enrollment money for that, and they get the cap. It's an aggregate cap, which is around thirty-two, thirty-three thousand, that they would get for your mother. So if a doctor tries to talk you into believing that your mother is dying, you're going to be turned over to hospice. He's not going to want her to die in the hospital. And mm-hmm. while it's all hospices, as Michelle said, are not bad um, I believe the majority of them are, and hundreds and hundreds of people have lost their loved ones to hospice, my mother being one of them. So I'm just calling in support of what Michelle is saying. There are a lot of bad actors, and in order for you to take care of your loved ones, you have to advocate for them. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Thank you, Marcia. Um, You're welcome. Thank you. And I'll continue okay. to listen. Thank you. All right. Thanks. Okay. All righty. Okay. Bye-bye. Okay. So, Michelle, um, mm-hmm. 
can you talk about why, you know, as Marsha was saying, that there is a push and part of it has to do with um, the hospital not wanting to have a death in the hospital. Um, are there ways that it benefits nursing homes and doctors if they push people into hospice? It does. And if I could just back up just a moment. Mm-hmm. Um, hospital, hospice nurses, There are nurses that work for hospice and social workers that are placed in a hospital, and that's that's their workplace every day. They go there first thing in the morning, and they leave there in the evening. They're hospice employees, but they're in the hospital. These hospice nurses and mission nurses, they have quotas, and they are expected to have so many admissions for that day or that week. Mm. So if you knew the person standing at your bedside in their little press white coat was actually a salesperson with a financial gain at stake, a commission, so to speak, because they get bonuses, selling you a product, would you not think twice about that decision in a different Mm. light? Mm-hmm. Right? But people don't see it that way. They see the white coat, trustworthy. They wouldn't lie. They want what's best for They're in the healthcare system. Things have changed dramatically in the healthcare landscape. And here's the thing. Patients are a commodity. Hospitals today make money based on a patient's DRG which is a diagnostic-related group. This system dictates how much Medicare or insurance will pay the hospital patient per patient visit, right? It's no Mm -hmm. longer, prior to the 1980s, the hospitals could bill for every Band-Aid they use, every bedpan, X-ray, procedure, if they did it, they could bill for it. Well, healthcare costs were getting out of control. So Medicare came up with this DRG system to contain healthcare costs. And now the hospital has they have to submit these billing codes in order to get reimbursed. So they just get a set amount to treat a patient. So the patient prior in the 1980s, which would go into the hospital for pneumonia and stay there for 10 days until that pneumonia is completely resolved, those days are gone. You're now worked up as quickly as possible, put on an antibiotic, and you are sent home to a rehab center, nursing home, someplace else. Mm-hmm. So if we now add to that this DRG system, because they're, the hospitals just want to get you in, get that billable DRG going, and then discharge you. We now have early discharges. We have hospital readmissions. We have incomplete diagnostic procedures for definitive, you know, diagnosis. Um, They're upcoding patient codes for uh, higher reimbursement. And when you discharge a patient too soon or with an incomplete diagnosis, there's not high likelihood that that patient's going to be readmitted to the hospital. Okay. Now, when patients are readmitted... Unless they go to hospice. Right. 
Well, it, 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 hold on, it gets there. Yeah. When a yeah. patient is readmitted to a hospital, that's a ding on a hospital if they're admitted mm-hmm. within 30 days. And then if they have multiple readmissions through the emergency room over a year's time, that's a further ding on a hospital. Mm-hmm. And coupled with that, the hospital doesn't want a death on their record. That's a ding. So we have all these little, you know, roadblocks all the way along for the patient. So now if the patient's a, a, a frequent flyer that keeps coming in and out, and then the hospital wants to do something else with them, now you need to go to rehab, nursing home, or hospice. If you're a high-maintenance patient, you're out. You know, they want you to go to hospice. They do not want you to come back to the hospital. That's basically what it is. They don't want you to come back to the hospital. And people will mm-hmm. say, well, if they don't come back, the hospital's not going to make money. But hospitals are making plenty of money on plenty of people. It's the mm-hmm. chronically ill patients that they see over and over again that are more high likely to be referred to hospice. Or if they're a hospital mistake, they're going to go to hospice. Um, hmm. So that's where that yeah, that's in, and that's visit. interesting because when my mom was given the medication she needed to start to get better, um, the doctor had agreed with the cardiologist that they would keep her a certain amount of days until she could um, leave on an oral version of the medication and have a day in the hospital to make sure that it worked. And before we even could get her into the rehab that we wanted, the doctor signed a um, discharge for that day, said she's leaving today. Um, Thankfully, Medicare allowed us to petition for two more days. Mm -hmm. But I thought that he was just trying to get revenge. (laughs) But now that answers the question better that they wanted her out of there as soon as possible. They just because wanted her out. the patient's there, right, and, and the longer the patient is there, the more that patient is cutting into the hospital's revenue of their reimbursement. You follow mm-hmm. me? So right. if I have a diagnosis where the, the hospital says, is going to be reimbursed, say, $2,500. Well, if they can get me out of the hospital the day or the next day, they're still getting that $2,500. They're just not spending as much on my care because they have that early discharge. Right. So then they move on to the next patient. Get them in, get those the billables gone, and then get the patient out. That's, that's, so now what, if, what about if... What about if uh, the patient is in long-term care and now they're pushing the family to put them into hospice? How does the nursing home benefit from putting, putting a resident into hospice? Who's paying for that nursing home? Is it Medicare? Is it the insurance? Is it the family? 
usually, usually in nurse, high maintenance. Usually, usually nursing homes, you pay cash until you spend down your money, and then you then you're in uh, your Medicaid, unless you're there for rehab, and then it's Medicare. And then what happens when the money runs out? You know, there's a there threshold by which, yeah, and there's a threshold of are they making money or are they losing money? Mm-hmm. There's case managers at all facilities, and their sole primary job is to know how many beds are filled in that facility, what type of patient is in that bed, where is that bed located? Is it on a step-down unit? Is it in an ICU? Is it in the ER? How much is it costing them to have that patient in that bed? Well, as soon as that patient starts cutting into how much they're making on that patient, then that patient has to go someplace else. What about if the hospice is right there in the nursing home? There are hospices that... They, well, it's a little bit different because hospice can have hospice can see patients in the ho- in the patient's home. There are mm-hmm. hospice houses. There are wings of nursing homes that patients can be on. There are beds within that can be designated within a hospital that can be a hospice bed. Um, those are would be just transient beds, though, if it's in a hospital, like for a mm-hmm. day or until that patient can be either transferred to a hospice house or the patient can be transferred home with hospice care. And usually those, okay. those hospital beds that are transient or designated as a hospice bed are only used until they can get equipment in the patient's home and then transfer the patient home. Okay. Because I know that there are hospices that come into nursing homes. And I, when I was working in the nursing home as a psychologist, I could no longer see that resident because Medicare would not pay me. They, they paid the hospice. Right. They right. had their own people. Right, and that is a way. It's um, that's a way for the. It's a twofold. That's the way for the hospital to funnel patients to the nursing home and then to hospice. And on the under, other end of that, that's a way for a hospice to funnel patients to them. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. you have them coming. If, if there's benefits on both sides. Do nursing homes. Um, double dip when they have a hospice of their own in the nursing home? Do they get paid more or or twice for residents who are in the nursing home and being treated by their hospice team? That I cannot answer that. I I, I do not have knowledge to that. Okay. How that financial. Right. So, so now let's talk about what actually happens in hospice when residents go to hospice. You said they don't get the things that they're promised, but I've also heard that they work 
to hasten deaths because if they're taking people in who aren't really dying, um, then it sounds like, uh, um, you know, from our discussion, it sounds like they don't want to keep them that long in the, in hospice. It, it depends on the patient. Mm-hmm. The patient, um, it, let's, let's start peeling this onion. There are just so many layers to it. Uh-huh. There are patients that are low maintenance. I'm going to tell you about Miss Minnie. Miss Minnie was in hospice care for five years. She was in hospice when I started in hospice. Um, she didn't need her nurse only visited her once every two weeks. An aide came by once a week. Uh, Miss Minnie did not need any uh, equipment at the time. She was on her own medication. She was going out to lunch once a week with her girlfriend. To look at her, she did not need to be on hospice. And grant you, she was in hospice for five years. She did not need to be on hospice. But every Mm -hmm. six months, the hospice doctor would recertify her. So say they're getting reimbursed. I'm just going to use a number. Say $150 a a day for this this many. Well, they're getting $150 a day, but they're not expending $150 a week on this many, right? So... Mm-hmm. One day may pay for her services, and now the other six days are just, you know, flush money, so to speak. So now mm-hmm. we have these these type of patients. And then we have other patients that they need a lot of medication. They're on a ventilator. Um, they need a lot of resources as far as manpower. Those patients are not going to last long in hospice. Those those need to go, uh, and they need to go because they need to offset the average number or the average census for that hospice. So there are a lot of same-day discharges and deaths, discharges from the hospital and deaths into hospice. Um, while the long-term patients make them money, it evens out the others that come in. They get their initial funding money, and then those patients are done away with, for lack of a better phrasing at this point. Um, How and then there's those they, middle ground patients. Yeah. How do they hasten their death? They either transport them and take them off their ventilator, let them die. Um, They isolate patients. Isolation is horrible on a patient. Mm -hmm. Um, They withhold food and water. They can over-medicate them. Um, There are so many ways just to hasten someone's death. You know, some people think it's just an easy 
you know, one, two, three step. But when you start layering all these things together, there is that will to live. And sometimes it's not a direct killing of a patient. It's the passive standby and not not it's not that you're just allowing them a natural death, but you're doing other things that are forcing them a little faster towards that. Right. Does that make any sense? Mhm. Mhm. Right. So you know, I always heard, I was always told, well, they stop feeding them or giving them water because they don't want it and it causes them more pain. But then I've heard stories recently where the patient is actually begging for water and food and and it's not given to them. And, and that happens. I mean, when I was going around the um, hospital houses, I would see food trays the bedside tray at the bottom of the bed, the tray, their food tray is on their tray. The aide would come in, the food aide would come in, drop off the tray, and then later just come by and pick it up. It's like, well, wait, 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 wait. Nobody's been in to feed. Wait, you, you know, that's their job, pick up and delivery, right? So you have these uh-huh. pick up and deliveries, but then... If you don't have the aid or the nurse in there to feed them or to bring the tray around to where they can even reach it, if they're still to that point, then you're slowly just starving these patients. And people aren't dumb. I mean, our elderly population is such in a vulnerable situation. Mm-hmm. And they don't want to be a burden to someone else. And sometimes I think they just give up. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They wouldn't have given up if someone would have just given them, you know, a little help or attention. It's still a type of passiveness. Mm -hmm. Mm What about that whole idea that people graduate from hospice? So I've heard people say, oh, you know, you should put the person in hospice, they get better care, and they probably will do better, and they'll graduate out. It's so great in that way. What do you say about that? I say that it's such BS. Let me tell you, hospice is a business of death, right? They take money to take care of someone till their death. How are you going to take money, government money, to say this person is going to die pretty soon and then you're just going to let them, you're going to do a live discharge? I mean, the hospice I worked for, they didn't even want uh, the patient to discharge out of service so they could go back home up north. I I worked in Florida, so there were a lot of um, snowbirds that would come down. They Mm -hmm. didn't even want 
patients discharge out of the area to go back home because they wanted that death on their record. They make money not only on, you know, the payments they make from the patient, but they make money on their, their, uh, the numbers of deaths on their records, on their books. That, just like a hospital doesn't want a death on their record, hospice wants that death on their record. That serves a purpose for them. It serves the purpose that they can show the community, oh, look what, how we're serving our community. They go to potential donors. Look how many people we've helped. It's just, and it also serves to block other hospice organizations from moving in to the community because they have to have a certificate of need to get a hospice within a community. Now, this varies by state by state, but in Florida, you needed a certificate of need. Um, so if they could block another hospice from coming into the area, now they have a monopoly in that county. And there's mm-hmm. no, um, it's a take it or leave it. There's no incentive for that hospice to do better or be better. It's us or nothing. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't know how this can be fixed, and I don't know that there's more regulation that needs to be done, but it certainly needs to have more oversight. There needs to be more conversation, and the conversation needs to be elevated to a national spotlight and then mm-hmm. make more people aware. Because for the most part, People are so busy these days. We have an, a, an aging population. I, I think the biggest that we've had with the baby boomers. Um, and then we have, you know, the 40, 50-year-olds that are trying to take care of their elderly patients, and they have kids, and they have grandkids, and they have careers. It's like they're disposable generations, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. that's not how... It should be all, all, every one of our elderly I view as a library unto themselves with their own story. And it is so sad mm-hmm. when an elderly person dies. We've lost all that knowledge mm-hmm. and to treat mm-hmm. them at their end of life in such a manner is disgraceful. And we should be ashamed of how we treat people. I agree. It's very sad. I agree. And I think, you know, what you're saying with the children, um, you know, the adult children of an elderly person who has a lot of medical needs, um, it seems very enticing to have this um, company that says, don't worry, we'll take care of it. And we'll make sure that your parent dies with dignity. So you go on and do your thing and we'll take care of it. And that sounds really wonderful to someone who doesn't really know what's going on. (laughs) No, and you trust them Mm -hmm. because they're healthcare Mm -hmm. workers. You trust them. They wouldn't do any harm. Right. You know, it's big business. Um, in, uh, I believe it was 2020, the CDD um, had, uh, released a paper that there were over 5,200 
hospice organizations within the United States, with 70% of them were for-profit, making mm-hmm. over $39 billion a year. Now, wow. right there, that should tell you the whole picture of hospice. It is big business. And they're going to make Let me ask- like any other business model. Go ahead. No, I was I was wondering when you said that people. I'm, I don't want to interrupt you, but I had a question about something you just said earlier. Um, you said that when people die, they get more money. Who pays them when when a hospice patient dies? No, oh no, they don't get more money. It's okay. That, um, oh. I think we were talking about how they use their death numbers. Is that what where I was mm-hmm. talking about? Yes. Yes. How they make yes. money off their death numbers? Well, yes. they use that money to show their donors. I mean, they have marketing campaigns. So they have marketing. Mm. They're out there showing this is how many people died. This is how many people were helping in the community. So they're asking people for money, donors, right? I get it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then... Like your celebrity or hope high profile or the the wealthier donors that have used hospice, they're certainly not going to allow them to you know they may think, oh well, we have money, we're going to get out of hospice, and you even think that you're going to leave hospice alive is a fairy tale because again, uh-huh. the business of hospice is death, and that's what you, your death is what you're going to get. Um, mm-hmm. they're going to keep those in service because you're grateful for their service. So now you're in their will or they're not looking at, you know, on those type of patients, they're not looking at the money they're making today. They're also looking at the donorship that they're going to make down the line for those kinds mm-hmm. of patients. You follow right. Right. Yep. Yep. And you're, and then that's right. If you get a wealthy patient, they're going to leave their money to, uh, they're going to leave some of their money at least to the hospice if they felt like, oh yeah, this is a great thing, they're helping, they're helping me die. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't want to take away from any family member that may be listening and think, that, you know, they had a positive experience with hospice. I don't want to tell them, no, you didn't have because I wasn't there. If you believe you had a positive experience with hospice and that was your loved one, then let's just leave it at that. Mm -hmm. My warning is for those that haven't experienced it or to validate those that know that something was wrong, that this is your warning and, and in most people, their header is in the sand because they don't want to talk about death. They don't want to think about their loved one dying. Well, you need to think about it beforehand. We get you know, Marsha's show, for instance. A lot of people reach out to Marsha and call Marsha to tell their story. And what they all say is, I did not know. Mm-hmm. To me, the, we should be screaming this from the rooftop. That, and again, not all hospices are bad, um, but when you have seventy percent of them or 
for-profit. And let me back up and say the, the organization I worked for was a nonprofit organization, and they were still doing it. Mm-hmm. So if a nonprofit mm-hmm. organization is doing it, and we have 70% of the organizations are for-profit, the odds are going to be stacked against you. Just right. be knowledge. Have knowledge. Be aware. Ask questions. Don't take something at face value. If they say it at your bedside, get it in writing, because no matter what they say at your bedside, if it's not, not in writing, most likely you're not going to remember who told you what, where, or when. You follow mm-hmm. me? Mm-hmm. So, so speaking of that, like what should listeners look for in making the decision about hospice? If you have a doctor and you have a staff who are telling you, you know, your your family member, your loved one is in pain, they're going to die, don't you want them to die without pain? Um, should you just listen to the doctor? Or what are some things you can do to make sure that this is the correct decision? Well, going back to your story, mm-hmm. no one's going to know your mom better than you. And there was something in your gut telling you this was wrong. You know, we mm-hmm. have the little voice in our head. We have the the feeling in our heart. And we have that the pit of the stomach. It's like something's not just right. Well, question that. Listen to that. Um Go back to your family physician, not the hospitalist, but your family physician. Is this a life, uh, a terminal? And I think the six-month uh, hospice uh, admission criteria really should be cut down to maybe three months. Six months, I think, is excessive. It should be about three months, if even that. Because really what you should be concerned about with hospice is the actively dying patient. If a patient mm-hmm. is actively dying, then give them the morphine, ease their pain. And if, it, if, if that actively pay, dying patient is going to, that actively dying stage can go on for two days, maybe even three days. And I mean the agitation, the pain, the torment of that patient and you cut it short by a day, to me that is mercy upon that patient. That's taking the care of that patient. To stand there and have that patient be in agony for three days, that's not doing, you know, we go back to do no harm. Well, we're Mm -hmm. doing harm by doing nothing. So there's a middle ground. And it's hard to say where that middle ground is because everyone's different. And until you're in that situation, um, but ask questions. Do your research. Know what you're getting ahead of time. Don't wait until you're in the hospital and they hit you up with hospice. And now you not only have this diagnosis that you weren't expecting and they're offering hospice, you know, that's like a gut punch to anybody, right? And now you're expected mm-hmm. to make decisions. You need to make these decisions ahead of time. How much research do, do people go into buying a car or finding the right neighborhood with the right schools for their kids? 
But then right. when it comes to end-of-life decisions, nobody wants to talk about it until it's like right on our doorstep and you can't close the door because death's foot is stopping you from closing your door. Mm-hmm. Then you want to address it. Well, then that's mm-hmm. too late. You should have seen it down the street and started addressing it down there. Right. I've gotten way off topic. But no, that's okay. I get okay. So no, that's up about this. <laughs> Now, this is the topic because I want to know, you know, what listeners can do. And um, it sounds like what you're saying is also find out what your family member would want, right? And some people want to go into hospice and, and stop all their meds. That's it. They've had enough. But other people want to live and they want as much treatment as possible. It's important to and, know that. And, uh, I'm- Yes, I'm glad you um, I'm glad you you brought that up because you know we're all going to die and it's up to the individual to uh, for what they want and mm-hmm. like you said most importantly above all it's what the patient wants. People right. um, try to tend to treat hospice as they do politics or religion that and it's very polarizing. You either hate hospice because you've been through it or you love hospice for one reason or the other. And it doesn't need to be all or nothing. It's really up to what um, what that person wanted. It's, it doesn't matter what you want for someone else. It's what that person wants for themselves. And I use myself as an example. Um, I don't have any kids. I don't have any, you know, strong ties except to my two chihuahuas <laughs> um, mm-hmm. who are being good as gold right now. And mm-hmm. um, when I'm old enough and I feel like I've had enough, because I, I, what, I did not ask to be brought into this world. So right. when I have had enough and when I feel like it's my time to go, I want to be, I want someone to be there to help me to go. That's my mm-hmm. choice. That's my life. And on the same token, if I wanted everything in the world done for me, then, you know, do what can be done. Don't, we can't impose our thoughts or wants on someone else. We need to ask people ahead of time, our family members ahead of time, if this happens, this happens, if this happens, what do you want done? And then hopefully we would have the strength to be able to do that as hard as it is. And and I hate to equate people with animals, but we've all probably had animals that we've had to put down as hard mm-hmm. as that. And I hate, I hate using that, but that's the only thing I can, I can use. As hard as that is, you have to think of what's in the best interest and what what would, of course, we're making the decision for the animal, and that is the best choice we can do at that time. But if the animal had a choice and the family member has a voice, you know, get it in writing ahead of time of what mm-hmm. you want, what that person wants. Well, I think a big part of it that we have to really, really be careful about is the ages. Uh, view Mm -hmm. and that's not Mm -hmm. and that's on the part of the medical provider 
as well as the family member and the person themselves. Like, you're old, so you can't tolerate treatment or we're not going to waste our money on treatment. Um, Doctors are saying, you know, we're saying, well, she's this age, so, you know, there's nothing else you can do. When that's not really true, that's not based on medicine, that's not medical um, advice, that's based on your view of age. So, you know, in my mom's situation, her speech was a little bit garbled because she had had a a mild stroke a few years earlier. She was on heavy-duty oxygen, so that made her speech worse. She was lying in a bed. So So her speech, you know, wasn't very good, and the doctor would just, the doctor just assumed that she had dementia and he speaking to her at all. And I know that because he would come in the morning before the family was allowed to come in because of visiting hours being very restricted during COVID. But we were able to have an aide, a private aide in the room with her all day. And the doctor did not, the doctor just assumed they were part of the furniture, but they were actually the fly on the wall and would tell us exactly what happened and what the doctor said and what the doctor did. So we do what was happening. We knew the doctor was not speaking to my mom. We knew what he said to the nurse about her. And um, I would come in the afternoon and I understood my mom's speech and she was much more alert in the afternoon and she would tell me everything that she wanted, which was to get better and get the heck out of there and not to hospice. She wanted to get, she wanted to get out and go to rehab and just, get better and live her life, which thankfully she did. Um, But there is an ageist view, and I think that that was a big part of the push, that they were trying to get us to believe that she was in pain when she wasn't and that she would suffer and that she was suffering already, which she was not. Um, And I think that's a big, you know, getting people to overcome their ageism is another part of the the uh, equation here, I think. Yeah, that, um, and knowing what your lo- what's normal for your loved one, don't let someone else try to manipulate you into thinking your loved one is one way when you know, I mean, you had that feeling because you knew your mom. And you went mm-hmm. with that gut instinct I was telling you. And thankfully you were, you know, you were strong enough to stand up to someone, uh, which most people think is an authority figure. Mm-hmm. Um, I think if, if the population could just see the healthcare system as a business and a moneymaker and that these aren't, you know, no one has all the answers. Um, so one part is that, you know, they tell patients, oh, you know, you have six months to live. And there's one patient I visited that had a calendar and he was just marking off the days. So, I mean, that's, wow. that's a horrible, horrible mm-hmm. way to live your life. What right do we have to tell someone else when you're going to die? And and there's no scientific evidence that a doctor can predict that. <laughs> so 
It's all a lie when they say that. So, so what should listeners look for if they do choose to go with hospice? They feel like their family member really is in a lot of pain and they are, you know, dying and the person is, they wanted that. It's all, you know, everybody's okay with it. How do they find the right hospice company that's going to do the right thing? I think how open the hospice is to communication and cooperation with the family and cooperation with the patient, with what the patient wants. It should never be about what the hospice organization wants to do, but what the patient wants to do. Because really you're paying for a service. So they are Mm -hmm. your service employees. Um, If you have time to research ahead of time, I would research the hospice that's in your area if you think that's the one you're going to be using in the future. Um, Keep your eyes and ears open. Are there... And, you know, just be alert and aware whenever you're, if it happens to be in a hospice house, alert and aware of the surroundings of other patients. How do they look? Are they disheveled? Have they been bathed? There's a lot of telltale signs that are there Mm -hmm. if you just open your eyes to and you're aware to look for them. And if your loved one is saying, get me out of here, well, I would think I would listen to them and get them out of there and look for something else. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, okay. It's hard. With so many hospices out there, it, 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 is, it can be daunting, but it's not that it cannot be done. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, Michelle, um, how can listeners find out more about you, about your book, how to purchase the book, and are you working on another book? Oh, great (laughs) question. (laughs) Well, there's nothing else more to me than me. I mean, nobody wants to know about me. However, my book is on Amazon, Killing for Profit, The Dark Side of Hospice. Uh, audio book. It's also in uh, English and French. Um, so that I have a website called thebreathinggirl.com. I can also be reached at thebreathinggirl at gmail.com. And I do have another book that I'm hoping to release in late spring, early summer that um, is covers more of my hospital work. It has uh, faith-based, some stories of faith-based. It has a broader view of the good and the bad. So there's a a more even feel to this next book. So that's it. All right. So I will be posting that on my uh, website post about this show, on my website, drmaricarpell.com. I'll put your 
the link to your website and your uh, your Gmail account so people can contact you. And um, I'm so glad that we connected, and it's really great to have you on the program. I think this is it's almost taboo to talk about this topic, and I'm so glad that we broke that taboo and that you wrote that book, which I have to tell you really helped me in, in feeling like I wasn't going crazy in my own experience. So, I, 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 like you said, validating people who've gone through it uh, is really important. And I think you're doing a great thing getting the message out there to let people know this is going on and they need to really um, investigate before making such a decision. Right, right. And there's a, a couple of documentaries that I'm participating in that are, um, I don't know their uh, release date yet. Um, one involves a, a daughter and similar circumstances to yours. Mm-hmm. And then there's another documentary that involves the Catholic Church and um, a hospice that they owned. And um, I'm not quite sure when, when those, that one will be released either. Uh, but I, I'll, as that becomes available, I'll probably put that on my website. And then hopefully when my book is, um, my next book is published, I can come back and we can talk about that one because that one's a little bit more. Absolutely. Up. <laughs> up and up. So. Okay. All good. right. Yep. Yep. No, absolutely. Let me know. I'd love to have you come back. Um, Perfect. And good, good well, luck I appreciate with you having me finishing on. that. Yes, and thank you for making the time to be on. This has been great. Um, you have a good evening, and we'll be in touch. All right. Thank you so very much. Okay. Thank you all for okay. listening. All right. Okay. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye. All right. Well, that wraps up another program. Um, this has been really great. Thank you all for listening for this whole time. I think there's so much important information there. And we are going to be back with another live program next week, Sunday, February 18th. And at that time, we'll be joined from right here in Austin by Marcella Cabay of RIA Health, which uses an evidence-based approach to addiction that is vastly different from the 12-step programs. And if you want to hear tonight's program again and read the information from this show and get those links that we talked about, go to my website, drmaricarpel.com, and that will all be uploaded later this evening. Um, But you can also listen to this program again in as soon as five minutes from now by going directly to blog talk radio, B-L-O-G, talkradio.com slash your golden years. And you can also listen on Apple Podcasts. And be sure to follow me on Facebook for upcoming shows and events, Dr. Mara Carpell, Your Golden Years. This show was produced by Accomplice Entertainment and Psyched Up Productions. And thank you to my guest, Michelle Young-Dewers. Thank you to our caller, Marsha Joyner. And thank you to Art. Thank you all for listening. Have a peaceful night and inspiring week. Happy Valentine's Day. And remember, 
Youth has no age. Good night, everyone. Stay safe. Any guidance offered by Dr. Carpell is not intended to replace the advice of your own physician or mental health specialist. Neither Dr. Carpell, her sponsors, nor this station assumes responsibility for the misuse of any information on this program.